0: In Petersburg, everything's fine. All Lamb Cans, is drinking that wine. Drinking that mess is their delight. When it gets around, start singing all night. Drinking wine, sporty you to drink wine, wine, forty you to drink wine, for to drink wine, forty you to drink wine. Pass that ball to me. Drinking that mess is delight When it gets the wrong, start fighting all night Knock Welcome to
1: Tasting Women's Anarchy, this is Jake Drinking Lindsay And down as down always, I'm joined by Macy Mason, day <laughs> day day Mason. Day uh, and this week we have a very special guest Who's actually uh, our highest downloaded episode guest Twice, mm-hmm. so we are, our number one episode and our number two episode Are the first Jackson Blood episode, by the way everybody Jackson Blood is our guest yeah. And hey. our New Year's episode is the second most downloaded so Jackson you are the most popular guest so far
2: good to know yeah
1: and so (laughs) I think because he's out there pimping the episodes, (laughs) (laughs) that that could be too and also because his knowledge of wine I think uh makes this (laughs) this show credible to some degree so uh I think that we've got a pretty cool show planned this week this is I'll go I'll give into a little bit the background of how I came up with this topic I don't I don't know what it was that I was doing but I was looking through reading about Portuguese wines, just because mm-hmm. it was it's interesting to me, and also because Jackson was talking about how much he likes them a lot. And he did recommend, actually, the one that I'm going to review this week is a, is a Jackson Blood recommendation. And I was just, you know, going online, reading around, waiting for somebody to respond to one of my tickets at work or something, and came across this EU, um, like an investment report. So it was like, it's like a report. For, I guess it's like a, the bureaucrats of Europe doing like a review of how their money is being spent. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And then I came across some other stuff that was talking about how how controversial the investment of EU money into different rural parts of uh, Europe have been. Like, in particular, rural Portugal. And the other thing that they were talking about was rural um, Sicily, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting. So I was like, man, this is, some, this is something I'd really like to talk about. Who can I have on to talk about it? And first. Person to come to mind was Jackson. So, Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So let's go ahead and, and I guess get into, uh, Wine reviews, real quick, before we go into the main topic. Uh, Jackson, you said you you have something uh, uh, that you're. Yeah, saying-
2: so I've been trying to drink a bit more Washington wines lately, just sort of because I primarily drink European wines. Try something local. Try something domestic. You know, mm-hmm. so I'm drinking the Licole, and I've had a few of their wines before. And this is uh, from the Seven Hills Vineyard in Walla Walla, Washington, and it's basically like a. A white Bordeaux blend, so it's 54% Simeon and uh, 44% Sauvignon Blanc, and it's a pretty interesting wine. Not exactly what you would expect from white Bordeaux, but certainly I like it a lot more than the stuff I've had out of California trying to mimic the same style.
1: Okay, that's, hmm. that is interesting. You said that's from Walla
2: Walla? Uh, yeah, Walla Walla, Seven Hills Vineyard, uh, Licolet.
1: Okay. And Walla Walla is uh, Columbia Valley?
2: So Walla Walla is right on the border with Oregon. Oh, okay. Uh, it's its own valley kind of region. And it's pretty far east, actually. You're looking at um, – you're sort of on the edge of a mountain range there, but you're – I think you're 400 miles east of Seattle. Okay. that That and is – as well. So Actually, you know – It's a warm region.
1: Okay. You know, earlier, earlier today I was actually out eating Mediterranean food with Victoria, my wife, and um, – there's like a little wine shop next door to it, so I was like, "Well, I'm going to go and get a wine by glass, and then just bring it out here to eat with the food." And mm. um, and I don't know why this remind. Well, no, I do know why it reminded me because it's also it was a Washington Cabernet Franc, and I've never had a Washington Cabernet Franc, and this was from the Yakima Valley. Mm, and I, Yeah, well, I, I don't know where that is exactly. I, I I've heard of it, and uh, I meant to look it up, but it, this just just you sharing that wine reminded me of it. It was it was un, it was very different Cab Franc. It was. Uh, much more like the California Cab Francs than like the Cab Francs from Loire. So yeah. it was just a very different, just a different different yeah. type of wine.
2: Yeah, so with Yakima in that region, you're dealing with sort of a warmer climate and it's not exactly why you would think because you spend a lot of time up in Washington at your family's yeah. camp, et cetera, right? Yeah, that's so right. Yeah. when you go east of the Cascades, the landscape, everything gets completely different. Okay. Uh, So basically what the Cascades do is the Cascades are, generally speaking, they go from 14,000, 10,000 feet in elevation, and and they sort of form a barrier. Between okay. the uh, the Pacific coastal zones and sort of the interior of the United States, so the climate completely changes after you go past the Cascades because those mountains provide sort of a cloud cover, right. and that's why the Pacific Northwest is such a rainy part of the country and more mild. Yeah. Whereas you go east, you're having much less sort of oceanic influences. You're having much more sort of arid conditions, greater diurnal changes in temperature, and so you're dealing with you know ninety hundred de- degree days during in a heat wave in the summer in Yakima, so it's wow. the growing conditions are actually a lot more like during the growing season itself, besides the fall, mm-hmm. um, you're dealing with conditions more similar to Napa than you would be to, say, the Puget Sound.
1: Wow, okay. That, that makes Just a lot the, of sense.
2: The, itself, the winter is, cold, is quite cold. Yeah. But not East Coast cold.
1: Okay. That makes a lot of sense because I guess we, like, the further inland you get, go, and it's really not even that far inland. It, uh, once you start getting in, you start getting those continental climates yeah. rather than the coastal climates that are stabilized by that large body of water.
2: Exactly. And that's why – and you mentioned it before. Uh, and this is – and I think this is cl- clever observation too, um, how sort of the lakes and large bodies of water act to um, – they really act uh, to sort of reflect the temperature and moderate it yeah. because they act as stores. Right. So the Pacific Ocean is a huge body of water, and so basically the water mixes with I, you know this is me talking science, uh, but the water mixes with the air, and that's what creates some much more mild conditions along the coast and inland where you're dealing with direct sun direct. Right. Right. Okay.
1: That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. Well, I mean, that, that actually, that's a, I think that was a, a very... Sorry for the tangent. But. No, no that's, 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 yeah, that's exactly the tangent we want because, like, you know, thinking about it when you, like, I'm looking at the globe right here while I'm talking to you, and when you think about it too is and you sort of go across over to france and you look at the the longitude and latitude or the latitude i guess is all that really matters in this case but um when you look at the latitudes of this you're looking at the south of france and how it lines up with like northern oregon and southern washington but then if you but france itself is sort of surrounded on both sides by water which really yeah. regulates its temperature. And then you've got the Gulf Stream that comes up, and, and those, those Gulf winds, they kind of come up and mix in and make the air warmer. So when you're talking about climate as far as the 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 temperature that's one thing but then you come in with the with an additional thing which is how much sun exposure are you going to get during the different parts of the season and mm-hmm. and then that further makes adds on a complexity so you've got in washington you can go in and get a more extreme climate or you can be kind of on the coast and get a more temperate climate that's regulated by that large body of water but in both cases you're at this 40, you know, 45, 40, between 45 and 48 degrees parallel, uh, that is going to like kind of give a similar sun, like direct sunlight onto the grapes. Whereas if you go down further down into like San Francisco Bay area and Napa and Sonoma, you're getting more down like direct sunlight, like in how, like, uh, maybe even down, like it looks almost, like it's hard to tell sometimes on the map, but it looks like it's almost like lined up with Morocco, not even Spain. It's even further south.
2: yeah, it gets uh, Texas, for example, um central Texas Texas is basically aligned with Morocco and India. It's not even aligned with Europe, yeah,
1: yeah, that's super, oh. that's really interesting
2: and you know it's a it's a pretty similar climate as well. Yeah. the other thing is just it's so easy to forget France for for France, for example, just how big a country it is mm-hmm. and how much. Diversity you're dealing with in terms of climates there as well, even though it's nowhere near the same size as the United States. Yeah, when you yeah,
1: and even and even in in France, when you just kind of look at the topograph map of it, like it 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 does have some pretty interesting topography, which is we're really getting way off topic
2: here, but. Oh no! This uh, is super on topic. This yeah. is this is what this is basically like. You think wine's like tasting and all that? No, it's all topography.
1: Yeah, because like when you start looking at topography and you look at like where like Loire is or Bordeaux or down in like the like the deep south of France. Uh, or no, wait, where's Rhone? Because I don't even see that on the map. Uh,
2: Rhone is further south. So northern Rhone okay. is more sort of um, it, it's southern France, but it's not really southern France. It's okay. just south. Lyon, but it goes down all the way to uh, Montpellier, Marseille area. Mm. Okay. Oh, I see off, that. Yeah. On sort of the end. So it's right? kind of,
1: it's sort of more interior, more close, like closer to the Mediterranean than it is to the Atlantic.
2: Oh yeah. Much more. So th- that's okay. why the Rhone, Rhone and Bordeaux are so different. The Rhone is a lot hotter climate than yeah. Bordeaux. Bordeaux's much more mild and kind of a little humid too. Okay. Bordeaux is a little bit like New Jersey without the cold winter.
1: I think, I think you and I talked about this online a little bit, Jackson, and maybe, yeah, I, up and up I might.
2: Jersey wine people.
1: Well, that's right. And also, I think I mentioned it to you, Mason. And actually, I talked to somebody about it online, but that there was uh, that I, I've i been starting to kind of get into Rhone um, Pinot Noir a, a little bit because it, it's Rhone Pinot Noir uh, or no, no, I'm sorry. Burgundy Pinot Noir, I think. Hold on. Yeah, yeah. Burgundy. Yeah. So where is Burgundy in relation to this?
2: Um, so Burgundy is north of the northern Rhone. So basically, okay. um, are you at all? Are you guys familiar with France? Geographically, I'm, look, I'm, of... I'm looking at it on a map. That's that. I'm looking at it on a map right now. I'm not yeah. naturally this good. Um... Basically, when you go north of uh, Lyon, you get to Macon is the next big city, and Macon sort of represents Beaujolais. Oh, okay, yeah, it yeah. It's sort of, and once you go north of Macon, you get um, Macon is where you start getting uh, Burgundian varieties. Yeah, south of Macon, Beaujolais, Macon where you start getting uh, Burgundian varieties, and Burgundy kind of ends at Dijon, but it also goes way up into um, into Chablis, which is a bit much more close to uh, okay. Champagne than it is to Burgundy. But that's a side note.
1: Okay, yeah, I've been, hmm. I've been I've been lately kind of exploring Burgundy Pinot Noir and then Beaujolais uh, mixed reds or red blends, which are oh, they're entirely gummy. They're super unusual and the the ones it's in Beaujolais deep. and and very hit or miss, not consistent yeah, at all. Yeah. It's very weird. I,
2: I feel the exact same way. A lot of it is a subregion mm. for Beaujolais. Beaujolais produces great wine, but it also produces complete plonk. Yeah. Okay. Um so Boujolet, like like with Boujolet, you have to look for the sub region. If it just says Boujolet, nothing else, you're yeah. probably not gonna get as good a you're not gonna get a great wine.
1: Okay.
2: Um you have to look for Morgon, Fleuret, um I so I'm blanking out on the the uh, the village names. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah, Morgan and Fleury are the most famous, and those are sort of the more full-bodied, more Pinot Noir-like examples of it. Mm. Whereas Beaujolais Nouveau and Standard Beaujolais, they use carbonic maceration, Right, which is the process where they add. Basically, they they prevent the carbon. Basically, they they put a weight on top of the grapes to prevent the carbon dioxide from seeping down into the grapes. And what that does is it preserves a lot of the more fruity, bubblegum-like qualities. So if you have a bad Beaujolais, and some people like this, you'll kind of smell like banana and bubblegum on it.
1: Oh, interesting. Okay, hmm.
2: um, and that's because. Um, when you don't allow any sort of carbon dioxide to uh, touch the grapes or the juice at all, mm-hmm. uh, and that's a process of carbon uh, carbonic maceration, or you limit the amount. Mm-hmm. What it does is it preserves more of the original fruit-like qualities, sort of like – this is a, a bad example, but it's a little bit like making a jam. You know how you make a jam and you preserve the fruit-like qualities because right. you're putting it into an airtight container. It's a little like that. Okay.
1: Okay. Well, that's interesting. And that's actually, that's probably a good segue to, for us to go ahead and for Mason, Mason, you did a Portuguese wine today too, didn't you? I did. Yes. Okay. Why don't, why don't we get into, into your wine? Because I've also got a Portuguese wine and Mm -hmm. the the Portuguese wine regions seem to be divided up even, even more heavily. And I, and I want to get into that a little bit with you, Jackson, before we get into the EU stuff, just because, um, it seems very complicated and it. Maybe it's not as complicated as I think, but uh, we'll let's let's go ahead and do your wine, Mason. I'll do mine, and then we'll get into that.
3: Yeah. So I have the now the winery. I think is Pinheel, which is P I N H E L, and Costas do Keo, uh Tinto. So it's a Tinto is what they—for Spanish or Portuguese for red. Um, so this one I got in a Groupon pack from splash wines from my parents for my birthday um so i got you know eight reds eight whites two rosés um so when jacob said he was doing a portuguese wine i went well maybe i have one this one happened to be portuguese um very dark ruby in color um dark purple kind of like a granite or not garnet color um it pretty tannic um so very kind of dry to the mouth um good berry flavor the ratings on this where i could find ratings for it because it's you know, it was very hard to find anything about it really, um, wasn't super strong. Now the back is in Portuguese and English. So they have a lot of, you know, kind of descriptions of what's going on and they, um, kind of try to give you like an idea of what it is, but you know, they don't do a great job of fully describing it. It's 13% alcohol by volume. Um, but it's great cause it has, uh, one of our favorite things, Jacob de Siena wine is like a regional stamp. So yeah, that, I think this yeah. is probably a government stamp, but you know, you and I are kind of like, Oh, they should have for like, you know, authenticity sort of things as opposed to, you know, these government enforced ones have a stamp saying kind of like where it's from. So,
2: right. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I'm with you on that. Um, yes. <laughs> and
3: so then, uh, the, uh, great blend is, uh, graffiti, um, Torgia Franca and then, uh, Tinta Rosi uh, or Roriz, um, which is uh, like a tempranile, um, but the Portuguese version of it, and then the other two I'm not super familiar with, but they do go into port, which I think we've talked about them before, Jacob.
2: Yeah. Or yeah. at least. Town, kind of, uh, tinta Quinto uh, Tinta. What are the other ones on it? Um, Portuguese, besides a few famous grapes, it's largely very heavily blended together. Though.
1: That's that's what I that's what I was reading online was that up until really the last forty or fifty years. Everything's very very heavily bent blended and mostly drinking locally unless it's unless it's put into port and yeah. and that's kind of what's um that's sort of what it's going to be part of our topic is kind of what's going on with the modern history of of Portugal, because it's opened up quite a bit, but that's um, Mason, you you messaged him the the wines in the in the chat, right?
3: Yeah, the grapes, yeah, yeah, yeah. or the, the, uh, yeah. Rufiti, uh, Trangiga Franca, and uh, Tinta Roriz Roriz Roriz, yeah,
2: that's what... yeah, Roriz, yeah, so it's uh, it, it would be uh, Rufite, Toriga Franca, uh, Tinta Roriz, which is Tempranillo, yeah, that's and it's in what region in Portugal did he say it was from again?
3: Um, this one hang on a second. I did a bunch of research on that and then now I'm just compl- um the Coa River area uh, which isn't super large but uh the now uh,
2: the Vino region uh terras de Baria. Baria oh that's yeah. a really that's surprising so um Baria is south of uh, or is it uh, i think no yeah Barria is north uh but yeah in, this in, is nor- a yeah, northern no northern portugal i was thinking yeah. in relation to the juero river as a whole yeah uh, but this is a tributary yeah. of it it
3: actually flows uh
2: south to north or north to south yeah oh. the barita region is they produce some very structured reds there and they're super age-worthy the ones in portugal i've had i've rarely seen them in the at all actually so that's somewhat surprising that's pretty cool
3: yeah i don't know if you've um, seen anything from splash wines um
2: yeah I, i'm familiar with them but I haven't.
3: yeah they seem to be the only ones that i could find that like carried it carried it um yeah. and then even on their site like this one was a 2016 um mm-hmm. they only had the 2014 available on the site and they didn't really kind of give you a whole lot of details on it but the uh package that i got was their um splash wines best of 2018 and hmm. so far we've had a Tuesday night red and uh this um, this Spanish or this Portuguese one they've all been very good but the Jacob you would like this the, the Tuesday night red is a um, uh, cabernet sauvignon and it it's kind of sweet but like not hmm. in a like disgusting way
1: okay sweet it, like more fun. like and fruity or sweet as in like sweet like sugary in between okay interesting okay yeah like it it
3: isn't like it's it's definitely cheap wine but it's not like that disgustingly like mass-produced cheap taste got it okay it was really interesting
1: Okay. Well, hmm. oh, that's yeah. it. that's interesting. So now, Mason, uh, did you say what the alcohol was on that? The
3: 13. 13%.
1: 100%. Okay. So I've actually got one from a different part of Portugal. So we we actually went over the name earlier, and I'm going to try it one more time. So Rap- Rapariga da Quinta. So that's what I'm going to go with. Uh, mine, mine's... <laughs> Uh, 14.5% alcohol by volume it is in let me grab my my bottle again cuz i for some reason i always set it behind me and it's always very difficult for me to reach but um <laughs> it's it's from i i would my guess is this is a more general region because when i look it up it just shows a gigantic red splotch on the south of portugal but not including the <laughs> the, the, the most southern part and it's uh uh alen Al,
2: oh, so, alentejo
1: Alan Tejo. Okay, so Alan Tejo, Um, and I think I told you this, Jackson, before we started recording. You recommended this to me because I, I said, hey, I'm going. I got these 25, this twenty five, this twenty percent off coupon at uh, Total Wine. Uh, I'd like to pick up some Portuguese wines. What do you recommend? You recommend two different Portuguese wines that they had. I like this one the best of the two, and so now I'm on my second bottle of this one. Mm, and nice. I thought, I thought it was very good. I went and picked up another one this weekend. Uh, because I had another coupon and was like, "Well, I'm going to go get more stuff." <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> and then and then I decided to do the por- the Portugal episode. So this is this one is made. Um, I'm going to try this the same way Mason did, which w- the grapes are Alicante Bouchette,
2: Alicante Bouchette, it's a it's a French mass production
1: grape. Okay, and then Aragones. or oh, it's Spanish, uh, but it's often used in
2: France. Okay. Um, Aragones, it's a Portuguese name for I think Mentia. Okay.
1: And you you know what, Ar- Ar- Aragones,
2: that's... Uh, Tempranillo, actually. It's oh, Tempranillo.
1: Tempranillo? Okay, that, now, isn't Aragon. wasn't that one of the kingdoms that end up coming together with Castile to make Spain?
2: 100%, and that's where it originated from. Oh, okay, that's, so what, so that's how... I... A lot of Arnache originated from there, and the names changed when it went to other names, so Aragones sort of refers to the past geor- geographical origin
1: okay that's interesting because yeah i recognize that part and i was like huh and, and i think actually mason you and i discussed that that was tempranillo and um this might be one of the reasons why i like it so much because i like that style of grapes and then the last mm-hmm. one is uh toriga Nacional, which i guess is like the portuguese national grape Yep. and there's a lot of that in port and, uh
2: yeah there's that's sort of their basically when they're trying to make their sort of cult wines that's sort of the grape they're uh, pushing for the most that's sort of their cabernet sauvignon if, mm. if you want to think about it in california terms if you will okay all right well that's nice but so they, it is more blended
1: okay okay so th- this is actually that's the smallest percentage i actually have the percentages here it's um uh of the first one the Al- alicante Bouchette, uh 52 percent aragones 27 yep. percent and Torriga uh national is 21 percent so oh, yeah. so not a bad so- not an unusual blend does seem to be like a general blend now i'll I'll go ahead and go over real quick the smell and the taste and my conclusion on it so uh the aroma or nose or whatever is uh ripe red fruit Uh, it does have a hint of mineraliness to it so it's kind of like a like a gravelly mineral smell um the taste is a very very strong fruit flavor but it's dry so it's not it's not and i've gone over this a a couple of times on the show there's a difference between fruitiness and and sweet it's not sweet because it is a dry Mm -hmm. wine the sugar has been metabolized by the yeast but it does have a lot of strong fruit flavors but it's in this this one it's just kind of not a particular fruit but it's just a ripe red fruit flavor maybe maybe ripe plum ripe uh, black cherry, that sort of thing. Um, it's sort of got a jamminess to it as well, like a kind of like a wild berry jam. Very soft tannins, medium body. Um definitely definitely has tannins, but it's a very soft tannins. It's not like a Cabernet Sauvignon or one of those more like uh grippy wines. Um very medium bodied and uh it also has a, a very slight mineraliness to it. Then there's another thing too this and i've noticed this with the other portuguese wine as well and also this argentinian malbec that i had the other day there is it's it's not carbonated at all but there is something about the flavor that reminds me of it being carbonated and i mm. and i i would I would imagine that's acidity because it's it's a it's a texture on my tongue, um, but I can't really point it out. But it's it's something very interesting. If either of you guys ever have it, um, if you can pick that up as well, uh, I, I think it's interesting. And I I've only had two or three that are like that so far, but it's definitely something that sticks out to me. And hmm. I, I had it in this Argentinian Malbec the other day, or Malbec however you say it, and. Um, and I was like, wow, like this is this reminds me so much of this Portuguese one. And then I had this Portuguese one again, and it reminded me of that again. and I and I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. It's this like it's like this like hint of carbonation, and even though it's not carbonated, so it's like it's something about that texture. So my conclusion on this was I think of the two Portuguese that I've had, uh, both of which you recommended, Jackson. Um, this one is definitely my favorite. Um, I think it goes really well with food. I had this uh, earlier today with this like beef and mushroom it's like a goulash i guess that i made um it's like right. a, it's like a stir fry goulash that that i make sometimes That's uh Good one
2: underrated
1: yeah i mean I, I make a lot of stuff like that so it's just kind of like beef bouillon and then you cook the beef in the beef bouillon and then you take the beef out and then you put in mushrooms and onions and ghee and uh some paprika some black pepper some salt and then just kind of like thicken it up until it's a gravy and then you put it all back together yeah so yeah
2: i do a different method for goulash but it's somewhat similar just yeah yeah, I, cut down I, yeah. A ton of onions and paprika throw in some Basically, throw in game. Game is best in a whole, but do oh, yeah, works yeah. too. Yeah, uh, and you know, cook it for four hours yeah. over a fire, and you're like in hunger. <laughs> yeah, it's good.
1: Well, it's 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 like the it's like poor man's goulash because I, I usually make it in about thirty minutes, but <laughs> 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 but it, but it's it's pretty good, and and my wife likes it, and that's what I that's what that's I like. Good. But but for casual drinking or just having this with a, like a casual meal like that, I think it's really good, and also just kind of for like sitting. In watching TV, which is when I normally have a glass of wine, is when we're kind of done with the day I have a glass of wine and we watch a show or something like that. Uh, I think this one's perfect for that. It's not, it's not overpowering in any way. It's not so complex that you have to pay attention to it, but it's uh, just good drinking and it tastes good. Uh, and that's really, that's my conclusion of it. Uh, you got any thoughts, either one of you, on that?
2: Oh yeah. No, this might great. help you. Like I don't, I, not that I should be helping, but um, like just a way of kind of looking at some of these Portuguese wines that you guys might find pretty interesting interesting is that if you look at Alentejo and I have my mm-hmm. Google maps pulled up just like you just and yeah. so I, I kind of knew this before but it's actually quite similar to Sacramento in climate so oh really
1: okay that's 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 where, where that's my, Aborigin, my place so <laughs> it
2: just kind of helps to know like a local you know equivalent right mm-hmm. um but you know it's it's a very hot part of Portugal mm-hmm. uh they make some really good wines I've had some of the best wines I've had out of there and um are actually Cabernet Sauvignon
1: Oh really? Okay. I'm
2: normally quite against that, but the ones I've had out of there could rival, you know, Napa Cabs in many ways, and I was really impressed by them.
1: Hmm. Okay. So it's
2: it's in a really interesting region. A lot of its bulk production still. A lot of it's still the wine co ops, which I'm sure you want to get into a little later yeah, in terms yeah. of how big an impact that's had on Portugal. But it, there's, you know, progress being made. It's hot, but you know, you can still make good wine.
1: Yeah. Well, and this, I mean, it looks like it's a very large region, and I noticed that there is a, it looks to me like a big reservoir on the map. Um, Yeah. yeah. Is that, is, I remember reading about how they used to get these grapes and they would, like, chip them down the river in these, like, really cool big flat boats, and it was, like, a really... is that not here? Is that somewhere else no, in Portugal? That's
2: that's entirely on the Duero River. Oh, Okay, okay. Uh, so that's like the famous port. Is if you go to Porto, you see these. You know, it's mainly for tourists. The stage, but okay. it's still kind of cool to look at because the wineries like to maintain it. They have these kind of old, like 18th century style boats that they still carry the barrels of port over on, and it's, it's a little bit of a gimmick, but it's still kind of cool. Okay. Alentejo is much different of a region. Alentejo, the The highest elevation is only about 2000 feet and that's more oh. interior okay it's closer it's more of a coastal plain that's where a lot of portugal's rice production is mm. so sacramento isn't actually yeah i mean out. that's
1: like everything you're describing is exactly like sacramento so huge <laughs> huge rice paddies uh like the where i'm from near sacramento is about 2000 feet elevation and yep. uh and there's a whole bunch of about 2000 feet elevation but then it just comes down in the valley and it's just flat lots of exactly lots of like uh yeah like a lot of a lot of rice paddies a lot of fruit orchards, a lot of nuts and um, things like that, like nuts and uh, apricots and plums and olives and all of those types of things all grown in that area. Um, yeah, yeah, it's,
2: it's a fantastic region in the world for agriculture, those sort of regions, because you can just, if you can irrigate and you have flat land and you can grow fruit, you can grow citrus, you are in a very good situation for large-scale yeah. agriculture. Picture. Problem is quality, as you're aware in the Central Valley, not yeah. everybody there, but quality is often adversely aff- um, affected by yeah. sort of the easy productive standards. It's just economics.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, when, when you when you have a region like that, sometimes it's, and this is actually, this is something that I learned recently that the Texas High Plains had a issue with for a long time until recently was that because it was so fertile and so easy to just grow tons and tons and tons of grapes, they were just growing... Basically, garbage grapes and then
2: uh, selling them for bulk wine. Uh, yeah, and this is a fantastic segue if you want to go into it into the yeah yeah let's do that EU wine pullout schemes or regulations because this is what it's about is sort of them saying we know about quality wine but you know it's it's complicated obviously I don't support the EU but they. Ha- I hate to admit it, yeah. they have made wines better. Okay. In certain regions, in certain areas. Certain regions they've made them worse, but in certain areas the the vine pull out schemes have worked. Okay. So shit, but it's true.
1: Yeah, so one thing that I thought was interesting when doing research for this episode okay. when and this was true in Portugal and this was also true in um, in uh, Sicily was that Prior to the EU coming in and sort of breaking these up, there was a whole bunch of these state owned co ops. And it was, and this is actually, you know, to. Now, granted, this is sort of a feather in the cap of the EU, but it's also a feather in the cap of the anti status is that you get these, they're basically communist grape growers or socialist grape growers where you have these huge co-ops where nobody really cares that much about the quality. They're not really interested in changing up their ways of doing it. They're producing very poor wine. And even when people were coming in to try to do something different and change it up a little bit, uh, these co-ops were so large and they had so much state influence that it was very difficult for independent producers to get any, anywhere because they would just get blocked by regulations and by the bureaucrats coming in and helping out the, the state-owned co-ops. And that is one of the things that the EU kind of came into Portugal and did was – there and it's very controversial too because there was a lot of very isolated regions I guess in Portugal where it was very difficult for them to get the wines out. So there, apparently they're still finding – These – they're not exactly lost grapes or unknown grapes, but they're kind of like unusual mutations that are in these isolated regions of of Portugal that didn't have any road access prior to the EU coming in and building roads everywhere. So they were were growing all these field varietals where it was just kind of like whatever's in the field mixes up. It makes these – these unusual grapes that, and then also they're calling them things that are completely different than what other people are calling them, and uh, and they're at these these different elevations or just in isolated valleys in different places. I mean, if you look at the topograph map of Portugal, it's it's very mountainous, and you can totally see. A lot of these places, you know, kind of like Mason, like West Virginia, where there's like all these isolated valleys and stuff like that mm-hmm. in West Virginia, Portugal seems like it's got a lot of that going
2: on as well. It's West Virginia times 200. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> much. Mod- the map, you know, you get... You get sort of you get taller, you get more extreme mountains, and it's a much more isolated region because there are because the region of Spain besides Galicia, which is quite fertile, but even there it's mountainous. Mm-hmm. The region of Spain near Portugal is the poorest, worst region of Spain to be in. So basically, it was quite isolated on the border, besides when the Spanish, at one point, decided, um, let's just take it over for you know hundred years. Um, but it, you know it's super isolated in that part yeah. of Portugal.
1: Well, you can actually, you can kind of, you know, what we were talking about earlier with, uh, the, with the mountains blocking the, the coastal weather or whatever, Portugal looks yep. like it's a really good example of that because once you get onto the eastern portion of Portugal where you're in in Spain, that's basically where the mountains end and you get into this kind of unfertile dry area. Uh, yeah. the, and so that's sort of like a really good example of where, that, where the topography can kind of block a lot of the moisture coming in and make it very difficult to grow things there unless you can get a lot of irrigation in, but I don't even know what the soil's like there.
3: All right, so two points real quick. Jacob, yeah, there's no I, it's topography. What am I calling it? Tipography or something close to
1: that. I think I'm saying topography, or yeah, it's it's
3: topography. How am I saying it? Topography. I I, I can't say it that way. I, I, it's very funny the way you're saying it. I I love it, but it, there. Like, it's topography. There's no to- I. Topography. <laughs> <So, laughs> so, topography. Hold just, on, hold on. Let I'm, me try
1: it. Let me try it again real quick. Hold on. Topography. Yeah, topography.
3: Top- topography. I'm going to go yeah. back to saying it the other way. <laughs> tipiography. I probably I will. I, I probably will. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's like you're putting an I in the front. So yeah. it's like tipiography. But um, <laughs> Okay. So I was trying to figure out, like, how so like one of the things that like is always so interesting to me like the idea that there were places in portugal which you know like you think old world portugal like you know you don't think the portuguese are like rich like the germans but if you told me like there's a place in germany that they had unknown varietals of grapes i'd be like bullshit and like that's yeah. the size of montana portugal's about uh square miles um So I was trying to figure out, like, what was a good state comparison. So I was like, let me look up Delaware. Delaware was way dwarfed by Portugal. But uh, our friend that we just talked about that was uh, like Portugal was two times in the isolation, West Virginia. West Virginia is about two times the size of Portugal. So you know how big West Virginia is. Portugal is about two times the size or is about half the size.
1: Wow, really? Half the size of yeah. West Virginia?
3: Yeah, West Virginia is about sixty-five thousand wow. or sixty-two thousand. Uh, oh wait, no, excuse me. I I was reading kilometers instead. Uh, Portugal is actually. Uh, excuse me, completely wrong. Portugal's about eleven thousand square miles larger.
1: Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. So they're rough. So. <laughs> they're, they're they're yeah. So it's a little bit larger. Okay. Maybe like cause... Ohio,
2: maybe. Uh... It's a little bigger. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes sense, and it's very long too. So you're gonna get you're gonna get a a very d- differing. But you're right though, Mason, because that that is interesting. That but you know I was watching an episode of X Files, which is one of the one of my favorite shows. Um, and they had that episode where this dude from like West Virginia who knows how no, to do like Pennsylvania. So oh, it's that. about the same size as Pennsylvania. Mhm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, but it- you know, up until like 1950s, 1960s, there were still people who were completely isolated in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And so now this is where I guess the controversy comes in, Jackson, and you can speak to this a little bit, is what I've been reading about it is that the EU came in, and not specifically with their with their wine programs and stuff like that, but they came into Portugal and places like Sicily and these kind of more mountainous, more uh, underdeveloped nations, and they came in, they basically just built roads everywhere. And that has changed a lot of the... Um, wine industry in Portugal in particular, because before a lot of these isolated areas were not accessible or it was very difficult to get to them. And you'd have, you know, generations of people living up there and they, you know, maybe they'd come down once in a while and, it, and they had probably electricity and stuff like that, but it wasn't really, they weren't really in contact that much with the outside world. Uh, and, and their main way of trans transportation was either, riding out on horses or something like that or coming down a river. And Mm. now they've got roads that go everywhere, and that changes things. And so the controversy that I've heard about or read about is that a lot of what the, I guess, the locals, the people who are into the traditional winemaking, which isn't necessarily the better way of making wine, but it's the way that they've been doing it for a long time, what they're upset about is that you've got these EU-backed programs coming in and building roads and then coming in and tearing out a lot of these old field varietal grapes and planting uh, noble grapes, so Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, all of these types of things, trying to do what's marketable as opposed to what Portugal has been doing for a really long time. And this is this is one of those things where <laughs> where it's sort this is the controversy, I guess, is just because you've been doing it for a really long time doesn't mean it's good. Yeah, and. If it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense. But then on the flip side of that is, well, is the EU promoting something that is marketable or is it, is it promoting something that it thinks is marketable, but the people maybe are, could be able to take a bigger risk. But then again, you've got another, another layer of complexity going on here, which is the EU did come in and it did end a lot of these state owned co ops, which were doing things very, very poorly. And that opened the market up a little bit for smaller wine producers to come in and start trying things that were different and better. And higher quality.
2: Yeah, so a li- there's two different things going on here at once and I think it's important to distinguish them. My view is I'm not an EU guy, but if I ha- if I could flip a switch and turn the US federal government into the EU, I actually would because you do have a lot more autonomy in Spain versus France than mm-hmm. you do in Texas versus South Dakota, right? Okay. Um But there's two things going on here. On one hand, you have sort of the smaller farmers who are growing grapes and grow. And it's not just grapes. It's food. It's pork. It's the fishermen, too, are really affected by this. It's EU quotas. And basically what they do is they say, oh, you should only produce this much amount and we're going to stop you if you produce more than this it's not exactly it's a quality control but not exactly and then the other scenario was the great pullout schemes that sort of emerged in the 80s and 90s and that came you know largely to address the overly basically the spanish and portuguese wine industries were basically a form either co-ops or grand noble estates because who ran portugal and spain before the eu sort of took control for the most part it was you know who it was? It was fascists, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, in, so, yeah. That was a um, who? Who was the big fascist dictator who took over Spain? Uh, right, right around World War Two. You had
2: Franco and Franco. I mean, Salazar. Salazar was worse.
1: than yes. Franco. Well, well, and but wasn't Franco like in control until like the seventies?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and Salazar was as well. Portugal kept their colonies in Africa and drafted Portuguese guys. I talked to a lot of Portuguese guys about this.
1: Okay, they drafted
2: these guys to fight in African wars in Angola and Mozambique in the mid seventies. Imagine that. Under you're, you're the poorest country in Europe your income is the same as mexico when you're being drafted to defend 400 year old colonies in africa
1: yeah that's bizarre yeah huh so i mean yeah that that does make it even more like just like the the complexity of what's going on with the eu and and wine is like a really interesting way to explore this too because you've also got and this is sort of a side because we're going to get into this uh eu document in a minute um one of the other things I was reading about that I I had no idea about this that apparently Sicily is still heavily controlled by the mafia Mm -hmm. and I had no idea about that and apparently that's been one of the most difficult things about Sicilian wine is that everybody has to pay this like mafia tax and in addition to having to pay all their regular government taxes and so people just don't want to Don't really want to open up a winery there. It's too risky. Um, Or the mafia has been taking their payments from these older estates or these co-ops for a long time. And so they're just like, well, we're not letting anybody else come in here. And even the government has to deal with them a lot. Is it because they're just entrenched? They've been there forever. And yeah,
2: super interesting. It's really interesting. I think it's a, a bit over-exaggerated because there's a ton of new Sicilian wineries opening up. There's a ton of new business happening in Sicily. Well, that, all
1: Yeah, them. well, that's what that's what this the article I was reading was saying that a lot of that is due to the EU is that the EU just kind of came in and went, we don't really care about your tradition. We're building roads everywhere. And I, I don't buy that. Okay. All it's, right.
2: Um, just uh, the reason why is I think... When I look at Italy and you look at the history of Italy, every single region of Italy produced a significant amount of wine throughout large periods of time. Mm-hmm. Mafia in Sicily is an issue. Mafia is going to extort you for money. How much is the mafia really going to extort you for money? It's a, right. it's a very, very minimal amount compared to the Italian federal government if you really want to look into it. It's shitty and it's scary. Right. You know, I, I think there's a lot of emphasis put on that. Sicily has a murder rate that would rival Vermont for lowest in the U.S. It's it's not a people have this crazy impression of how the mafia works there. Okay, I pick the mafia over you know Seattle, you know central government. I I think it's a (laughs)
3: little bit. Well, that's and I, I have a friend who's from Sicily. Like, his mom is Sicilian, and he lived back in Sicily. Um, It's one of those things where, like, the mob, (laughs) it's kind of like the Yakuza in Japan. They take their toll and things like that, but a lot of times they end up being very useful in keeping certain things, and that can be enforcement of not opening the wineries and things like that. But there's no way those wineries are opening just because the EU said so. Like, Sicily is severely screwed up in that. The Mm mob's found a way to make money on those, and they're profiting from them, so I, I imagine and it was some very well
2: greased and timed palm.
1: Okay, yeah. that, that probably makes sense. Um, but someone anyway. I
2: knew, uh, sorry,
1: no, go ahead, go, go for it, yeah. go for it. Oh,
2: someone I knew um, got, ended up running into the mob and had a great time.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, and, they, like a lot uh, of she
2: was like she was backpacking the country for like three weeks. Got somebody got sick and lost, and they had to go to the local mobster's house and they fed them well for five days and kept them company and entertained them because you have sort of an obligation to help those who are lost in that area. So it's not all okay. bad
1: well and that's that's one of the things that that uh this article was talking about was that um a, a lot of it a lot of it is um it's tradition, but mostly, mostly what they were talking about was that, like, so somebody was trying to open up a wine tourism business there where they would basically have, like, buses that would just take you around Sicily to, to mm-hmm. try all the wines. And she said one of the things that was interesting, because this was they had an outside investor investing with locals or people from the island. And one of the things that they thought was interesting was that people from the island were like, and we've got to make sure that we reserve 3% or 4% or whatever for our payment to these mafia groups. And the, and the outside investor was like, what? What are you talking about? and they were like no no you know we need to pay it it's it's really it's just not worth the hassle um we'll just you know we'll just go ahead and pay it and and they were like the the outside investors were like freaking out about it they were like what how is it, like how is this a thing or whatever but the the overall argument of the thing was that the EU coming in and and basically modernizing has made it so that it's just more difficult for the the mafia to do business there which you know, take that one way or the other. I'm not disagreeing with either one of you guys. But um, one thing that I do, I think, Mason, you and I, and maybe Jackson, you'd be interested in trying this is eventually, if we could get some wines from, uh, from the Etna region, which
2: I guess is like right They're or fantastic.
1: Yeah, that's what well, I've heard. They're supposed to be really good, and they have like this volcanic
3: soil there. That and it's yeah. a, and it's an active
2: volcano, and you super can, high elevation in some areas too. So you get quite a bit of acidity as well.
3: Jacob, yeah, I I wish I had known because I had a Sicilian
2: oh really okay wine
3: in that pack. Oh, um, I have no I have no idea. Like here is the thing, I'm not degrading. I'm not um, being derogatory to splash wines. Yeah, but you know it, there it, it wasn't you know it wasn't like a five hundred dollar wine subscription or something like that. They, they make a yeah, you know, they generally have lower tier wine so i have to okay. imagine like yeah it's still probably good it's just like i don't know if it would be in the this area all
1: okay. okay, right <laughs> yeah. well let's let's try to get let's get back to portugal because we're already running yeah, long so or was, not we're yeah. not really running long but i keep going off on these like side things we still we saw that i think it's my fault for the most no part. no, yeah. no like, <laughs> that's, not that's us yeah that, that's definitely us but uh so let's just go ahead and do like a brief a brief history jackson of of, of portugal what they what they let's say let's say let's start in like maybe 1900 so like since 1900 what has been their major export wine what has been available to the rest of the world and been promoted for the rest of the world and then maybe i guess this would be late 80s when they joined the eu or or 86 is that when they joined the eu um i don't know for sure and
2: then Um, i think it was 86 okay Um,
1: all right jackson so you want to go ahead and and give us a a brief summary for the last 200 years ish of uh, portugal winemaking so that we can kind of get into our final topic of how the eu has impacted wine production in
2: portugal yeah so portugal has basically grown wine forever you know starting with the before the romans phoenicians if you really want to go into it Uh, but basically wine production in portugal really became a major export industry um, in that during the english treaty of i think that was there was several english treaties there was actually i think three or four of them Mm -hmm. where Britain would go to war with France, right? Right. And basically, France was a primary source of wine in Britain because you can't really grow grapes in, in England except the way, way south of France, and there was only a few people doing it back then. Okay. Um, so basically, they had to rely off of Portugal for their wine production, and the, the wine that worked, because it was a long shipping distance and it worked, mm-hmm. it was port, which is fortified. Yeah. So that sort of became the basis of the commercial Portuguese wine industry, which is different from the domestic Portuguese wine di- industry, mm-hmm. which is why if you go to port you see a lot of graham hancocks coburns all of that very english names because the english merchants bought places in portugal and started basically exporting port in the 17th century Mm. and so it kind of continued going on and on like that that was what port and madeira which basically went to the americas and that's from an island off of portugal that portugal owns um those sort of became the two of the most important wines of the age of exploration because those were bo- and sherry as well from Spain because those were all fortified, mm-hmm. survived the long ship distance. So that sort of became the, the basis of uh, the Portuguese wine industry. Was initially fortified wines and the country was largely producing for the domestic for domestic consumption, quite heavy reds or um, lighter coastal whites around Vino Verde, which they grow in a really interesting way as well. So that's sort of the basis of Portugal. Is you have some top. Red estates, you have a ton of fortified wine for export, made often at very high quality, and then mostly you have peasant wine. Okay. Right? And so that sort of is the start of the industry 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. So 100 years ago, Portugal is a mess. You have. Tons of you have the liberal revolutions, you have fascist revolutionaries, you have social revol, socialist revolutionaries, you have it all in Portugal around this time. But basically, you know, there's a constitution that kicked out the monarch around the late 19th century. And so uh, skipping ahead of a lot, Salazar, he's closely related to Franco's school of fascism, if you will, but it's a little bit more like ultra-conservative integralism, but it's complicated. Um Basically, one of the programs him and his predecessors wanted to do was wine co-ops because if you think about it and you're a small wine producer, maybe you're a small peasant farmer, you have 10 acres of vines under your name, you want to have the occasional drink and make some money, what do you do? Wine equipment is extremely expensive, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Right. You you say, okay, let's all get, buy the equipment together. We'll push our grapes in together and make a ton of wine. It'll be a lot cheaper.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That makes sense.
2: you 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 you, You know, if you're trying to make your own, if you couldn't buy like, you know, you couldn't really buy beer or wine at the store. You kind of have to make your own in an isolated area. That seems like a pretty good idea, doesn't it? Yeah. You? Well, and
1: this is this is sort of we have something similar going on in the United States right now, which is like custom crush facilities. But it's like exactly the, yeah. the equipment is owned separately by some some company or or a vineyard or something like that, and then they try to lease out as much time because really you're not you, the equipment's only used really once a once a year, so it makes sense to try to sort of mitigate the cost or spread it out as much as
3: you possibly can. Yeah, and and that's one of those things that I. I we we need to talk to john about it a little bit more yeah. cuz the timing of it cuz like and i think jackson can kind of you know see in this too like one of the things that i always wondered about that custom crush idea is like how do you like Everybody's kind of coming due at the same time.
1: Yeah, well, that's why John so. was saying that. Like sometimes you've got people who who rent out the equipment at like 2 a.m. to 6 p. like 6 a.m. So mm-hmm. so you've got like the, this four hour period where you can you can put the grapes through to get them destemmed and and whatever needs to be done and then crushed and then you're and then you're quickly trying to get them into your own barrels and your own. Well, I guess they don't go directly into barrels these days. Uh, most of the time they go dr- they most go into the these yeah these big concrete things or these big plastic ones so that you can then ship them back to you because then there's also this is another side tangent i don't want to get on it too much but there's also like a, a, an there's a way that taxes work that if you are uh putting it into barrels on your own facility your taxes are lower than if you're putting them into barrels on the facility of the custom crush location so there, there's like this additional finagling that you have to do to try to figure all that out but that's kind of what's going on here in portugal back then is that people are trying to go like look this is it's expensive equipment yeah. You know, we're not, we're trying to make very large volumes, and so it makes sense to try to come together and do it together.
2: Mm-hmm. And- but the, yeah, and but then the thing is, and we should all point this out. This wasn't th- this was partially sort of a local phenomenon. And if a group of farmers want to get together, you know, all power to them, right? Mm-hmm. The problem was this was sort of a large phenomena to kind of get farms consolidated together. And it's not exactly communism in a way, but basically when you have farms consolidated into co-ops, if you're it, right. If you're a fascist guy and you want to have more control over the society as a large, when you have larger institutions that control more farms and you have more control. Yeah. So it was largely subsidized, encouraged, sometimes forced. The top, you know, port producers and large companies and the most aristocratic houses got to keep what they had. Obvious reasons. Um, It wasn't, you know, an entirely cooperative system, but it was not a the problem with co-ops is they make bad wine mostly.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it, well it, I, I guess it would make sense because it, it, it's sort of the same incentive structure as, as any sort of co-op farm is that if all of your – if all of your produce is going to be mixed together, what's your incentive to take better care of yours? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. if your neighbors or, – or, or even if like your neighbor has a vineyard and the terroir affects his grapes in a, in a way that's just going to make him not produce great grapes and then you've got this really great hill location – that's like the, an awesome slope. That's going to get like the sunlight just the way it is. And all the drown, all the drainage is really good. You've got like a really nice limestone soil. That's very Rocky or whatever it, it, puts this really interesting flavor into your wine and then all of your grapes are getting mixed together with Joe Schmo who has a valley floor one and his, his wine is all sitting in water all the time and he picks yeah. it and it's all like full of water and it did, not a lot of flavor or whatever so like what's your incentive you know and this is you know the, the Misesian insight that, that us you know libertarians and free market people are always talking about is that like you know humans act based on what they see as their incentive or what they see
2: as their advantage um, mm-hmm. and one other thing to add to that if I have a Kauai- operative a lot of wine is blended. But it, it's just a, a lot of the best wine is also blended mm-hmm. from different vineyards. You know, sure. one of the most expensive, you know, um the Grange wines out of Australia, those guys go still- for five thousand a bottle and they're yeah. entirely blended from different regions, oftentimes within this uh, just the South Australia region in general, and they can cost a ton of money. So a blend mm-hmm. isn't necessarily a bad thing. The problems right. start to occur when you're trying to look for production over quality and how big is a co-op? If you mm-hmm. and five other guys who have vineyards and you want to pitch in for equipment have a co-op, chances are you're not gonna have that many problems, you know? Yeah. You can kind of keep track of each other, police each other, right? But if you have a hundred, a thousand different grape producers putting tons of of grapes onto it, who can keep track?
1: Yeah. Well, then, and then he, it further complicates it too that in a lot of these um, co op farms, a lot of them end up being state owned and state controlled. And then, Absolutely. and so, and nobody, nobody on who was
2: working them, none
1: of those people actually had any sort of ownership stake in it. They just worked yeah, it.
2: Yeah, uh, Burgundy created a different structure. The free market version in some ways is, is a negotiant. Okay. Um, and that might interest you is basically what the negotiant does. And most Burgundies produce negotiants, although oh. – Hmm. Monopoly vineyards and single producers are gaining a lot of popularity. But they basically, because of the Napoleonic inheritance code, Burgundy is super, super balkanized and fractionalized. Um, So you have like one acre vineyard, but it could be Grand Cru and one acre vineyard and Grand Cru Burgundy can make a lot of money. Um, So basically, you can't make too many bottles on your own. So you sell to these negotiants and they keep track of which vineyards there are, which version of terroir there are. And they will blend sometimes, but they keep it to the village level and they buy from different producers from the same Grand Cru or same village level or yeah, same valley yeah. floor. I can, so I, can, yeah,
1: I can see an advantage of that too. And I've actually been thinking about this a lot lately as I as I get deeper into the wine wine world. Like I'm very interested in the business side of wine it, it, mm-hmm. as much as I am interested in just like the tasting. Um, it makes a lot of sense to me to have – some guy who grows the grapes and is and is all very hands-on knows everything about growing grapes knows about the soil knows about what he needs to do he's a farmer he knows exactly what there's is to do about that but then there's a transition period where you're moving those grapes from that guy to the guy who knows everything there is to know about making wine and hmm. and i could see i can see a huge advantage of that but i can also see the other side of it and this this makes a lot of sense to me too where you've got the guy who owns the vineyard spends a lot of time with the grapes cares a lot about the grapes, but then also once it's harvest time, then transitions it and does the wine making himself and also knows that I, I, I can see both sides of that. So I can, so, you know, I, I've been reading a lot into like Texas wines and stuff lately. And one of the things that's very common here is there are people who own vineyards and they don't make wine and they sell all of their grapes to Lolano Estacado or somewhere like, that. you know, some large, large company in, uh, Texas that makes, yeah, that makes wine. Yeah. It, basically the negotiation and they, they go out, they go look at the, they go look at the grapes, they go check out the vineyards and they and they go like oh we want to use these grapes to make this wine and we want to make and we want to use these other ones to make the shitty wine but we want to use these to make this really good wine and and like we i've talked about this on the show before like i've i've had like a whole 180 on look estacado they have such a bizarre range of quality in their wine like their their regular old tempranillo or tempranillo however you say it tempranillo, is, yeah, yeah it's awful I, I don't like their regular one, <laughs> but their their Tempranillo Reserve is one of the best ones I've had. So mm-hmm. I'm like, how are these so different? And when you when you go and like dig into it, one of them is just like a whole bunch of vineyards and they mix them together. The other one is like they went and selected these high plains vineyards specifically because they do these grapes well, and then and it's. The re- it's the reserve. They they treated it very well. The other ones is just like, yeah, we just kind of like did these ones, and here it is found on the side of the road. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I, that's what that's uh, what it feels like.
3: The porcupine got in the in the crusher. Yeah, and it didn't die, but it did crap everywhere. <laughs>
1: right. Well, and I and I also like recently I had uh, their GSM and the Lolano Estacado GSM, which I guess is done.
2: Did the grenache on that one? Did you?
1: No, like that one. It, it was actually it was just. It was okay, but like the the price for it, I was like, they really needed like they need to like change the order of these grapes because like I've had their Syrah before and the S in in GSM is Syrah, and their Syrah is good. So I was like, well, they need to just put more Syrah in and then kind of reframe it and make it more structured by adding, uh, what is it? It's, uh, what's the G and the M in GSM? Uh, Grenache Syrah, Movedra. Yeah, mm-hmm. so more uh, they need to like turn, I, 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 I'm not a winemaker, I don't know, but like I feel like they need to up the S, they need to decrease the G and the M.
2: <laughs> I, I, I think Texas is making more wine than they should. I, I really don't. I think other than a few, sub-regions in Texas and people making it for fun. I don't think Texas should largely be making wine. I've kind of come to that conclusion i think well, i think see, I, I, I don't Go i don't
3: you know i don't have haven't had many texas wines but this i think this is the classic and i think this should bring us back of course to the not article but the the white paper because that's yeah. what it is jacob it's a, sure. a white paper yeah, technically yeah. um to to the what we have on hand is i don't necessarily think that texas is. it's it's kind of like that area of portugal where and so this is i think this is kind of a preserved. preserve oh, that area part.
2: of portugal is a far far that's 10 times better region for green. no 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 no
3: I I don't disagree with you, but what I mean is like – so one of the things is there's a difference between the ability to do something, and we've talked about this on this episode, the ability to do something compared to – um Whether the you... skill of doing something, mm-hmm. like you know, you look at certain Chinese products and you're like, the same factory makes an iPhone and then it produces like this cheap Indian one, you know, goes to yeah. India and you're like, it barely charges and the Indian guy's like, this is amazing. So, and whereas you're like, my iPhone broke. And it's like, what do you mean? It's like, well, it just won't turn on. It's like, well, did you charge it? No. Well, you know, so we we have this thing where like I don't know if Texas is des- is necessarily putting its best foot forward because the people who are currently making wines in Texas may not be. the the most yeah. skilled for that area well but because yeah. of the perverse incentive and structures and things like that in in the u.s and you know grants and things like that now like there's somebody we're going to hopefully talk to later yeah. um who's making wine in texas who's or trying to make wine in texas who is dedicated to the art of making wine yeah so
1: well and that you know i don't want to go too far off on this because we do want to get back to that white paper but mm-hmm. um, one of the things, Jackson, I'll tell you this, and, and maybe I should send you send you a Texas wine that I think is very good, just so you can try
2: it out. But. Uh, but no, the, I've had a few good ones. I'm just, yeah. I'm you know, a little facetious, but I sure, sure. Well,
1: what, what, I, what, it is is it seems to me and I, and like I've, I've been reading into this a lot lately cause it, it, it's so, it's so diverse. It's like, they've got really, really terrible wine and they have really good wine. I'm like, why is it so different? And so I've been reading a bunch about it. And one of the things is that up until like 95, 96, uh, in the mid nineties, all of the wine that was made in Texas up until the seventies was bulk grape growing and they sold it and it was and it was used to make just like you know thunderbird thunderword bird or whatever they were you
2: know whatever Sweet. Is redneck
1: wine? Yeah, exactly, redneck wine. Which you know, there's nothing wrong with that if that's what you like, but it's not high quality. And yeah, and then I guess in the 70s they started having some people come in and go like, well, no, let's let's see what we can do here. There, it's fertile. It's the climate's not terrible. Uh, let's see what we can do. And then they started making a lot of the noble grapes and stuff like that. But the reason they were doing that was because they were hiring consultants, and all the consultants were out of California. So the consultants were coming in. They were going like, oh, you want to make wine? We'll tell you what what to make that sells really well from california
3: which is a perfect segue into this paper jacob
1: it is a perfect segue and so they were they were doing that but that's not necessarily what grows really well in texas and one of the things they discovered in the in the late 80s early 90s is that tempranillo and vignet do fairly well here and so and now they're starting to expand into other ones that they just really never thought that much about making in texas until people started taking tours of europe and going like uh, but Tempranillo is a, a good example of this. Somebody somebody took like a business trip or whatever to to um, Spain, and they were looking for like cattle to mix with their cattle here in Texas. And yeah. and while they were there, they they spent a couple of days looking at cattle, and then they and then they went on to taste wine, and they were like, "Holy crap! Like the region, this this climate is very similar to the High Plains region. Why aren't we making Tempranillo?" And because these people had a, a small vineyard, and it was they were growing you know normal French thing, Cabernet, Merlot, Syrah, that type of thing, and they were doing okay. But what they discovered was that you know, this is not really the best climate for those grapes. They need to find grapes that really, really like Texas because Texas is a weird yeah, you place. Need, you
2: need a later ripening grape. It's yeah, exactly. And, it,
1: and it's hot here. It's really hot. Like it gets up to Temponela 105. Tempranillo is
3: actually an early ripening grape.
2: Yeah,
1: but but if you let it if you let it go for a long time, you're going to get a much much more sugar, a lot higher alcohol mm-hmm. content, and a lot more of those fruity flavors. And then if you treat it correctly during the fermentation process, you're going to get a lot of that oak. Uh, flavor transition to it, and so the yeah,
2: no tempranillo is a little interesting because the sorry I no go ahead. To, but, um, <laughs> the region in Spain, sort of that Castile actually gets quite cold, and it actually has to be somewhat cold hardy as well. Tempranillo yeah. because you get freezes in that part of Spain. Well, and you get, and you know what's weird
1: about here is you do you get you get late spring freezes here too, and, oh, yeah. and it, because it's this weird continental not not here meaning the Dallas area but the High Plains area you get these continental temperatures which have these kind of wild swings and it's just very strange. Uh, so you need these very hardy grapes, but you also need grapes that produce good wine. But Mason, what was the transition that you wanted to do back to the white paper because we've got maybe ten minutes longer, and so we our, cut our out. main
3: focus tonight has been on pork jiggle in Texas. So you know there are some you know if you look at pictures of portugal you could be like that's texas you know except for the mountains like the high Mm -hmm. mountains of portugal Mm -hmm. but what i was trying to say is um we were talking about kind of in the break and before, you know, we took a break. So those who don't know magic of podcasting, we did take a break. Mm -hmm. Um, but like, you know, where people were coming in and kind of showing the Portuguese, like, you know, here are these wine varieties that sell, whereas the Portuguese are like, well, I don't have any experience in this wine. I don't know how to use it. So we, we have this paper that the EU put out where it was a study where basically the EU bureaucrats and maybe not the bureaucrats, but like, you know, I think the, I think the EU a lot more than the United States has a, a mandate to present statistical information that what they were doing was actually relevant. Yeah, so the yep. EU had a, po- a plan policy. Some sort of guidelines in uh, I think it was 2008 to 2013 was the the period that that was specifically covered by the paper, where they were talking about like well no this was 2014 2018 I, I can't remember exactly no no um, yeah I
1: think you're right on the first one because the papers from 2014 and I think they're in a new period right now yeah have 2014
3: begins the new period yeah. so they're trying to assess this um this plan of action they had on trying to get areas like member states to put money into the wine regions to develop them, but not in the, like, Jacob, you have a successful winery. Mason does not. Mason literally can't make his operating costs. You, Jacob, you're selling your wine locally. You're doing okay. But they were trying to get the member states to fund you to expand your reach whereas not necessarily fund me to keep me in operations they're like hey let the bad ones die and and, you know which we know the government never does anything like that but like they you know it's like trying to hurt a bunch of chickens and watching the eu bureaucrats get pissed because they're trying to hurt chickens
1: sure yeah and and that and that does seem you know jackson i don't know if you had a chance to look at this white paper i just thought it was very interesting
2: um I but, took a, a quick look, and it, yeah. it is sort of this the EU talking points. But yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, it does. It does seem to be the EU talk This this was actually way more harsh than I expected a EU paper to be. Uh, I I kind surprise of surprise you, man. I I have been getting very surprised by the EU lately because it is a huge bureaucracy, but they do seem to have a uh, a lot more savvy than I expected.
2: Now, like the the problem with the EU is they're obviously people who can't mind their own business, but they're a lot smarter than the same people in the the in the u.s who do have the same role yeah yeah that's what that's what it seems
1: seems like so this this paper to just kind of sum it up real quick mason it's basically it, it covers what the eu had been trying to do to promote the wine region then it covers that it failed in in and mostly the failure was that it just was giving money to the people who shouldn't have been getting money and then it kind of has some policy prescriptions um for what maybe they should do in the next period. So the the biggest problem and you and you kind of addressed this already, Mason, what it seemed like the biggest problem was that they were giving money to the governments With the expectation that the governments were going to help out the wineries that were doing well, and just kind of help the wineries that were not doing well, kind of go away. And Mm -hmm. what ended up happening instead was the people who probably shouldn't have gotten the money were getting a lot of the money, and the people who should have or who were doing well just kept going on their own and doing whatever they were doing before. And also got money. (laughs) Yeah, and also got money. But they, but it was, it was just kind of like a a non thing. Now, one of the things that they don't really address too much in this paper, although it's, it's mentioned a couple of times. Not really directly, but sort of elusively is – and Jackson, you can kind of allude to this – is that one of the things that the EU seems to both love and hate is preserving local character because it's so important to Europe as as ridiculously diverse as Europe is. But, you know, people don't really think about this in Europe, particularly Americans, because we just kind of see Europe as this, as Europe. But it, but it's so incredibly diverse, and then it's diverse down to like the the valleys, down to like this tiny region here where like these guys are making this cheese that is different than this other cheese. Like there's this famous quote about a guy who, or I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's like about like if uh, if France was divided up by like the number of cheeses that they make, it would be yeah. like it would be like several thousand countries or something like that
2: (laughs) Um, a better one would be just how many grapes there are in italy
1: yeah well yeah just the number of grapes and and genetically different and also uh, handled differently the traditions and stuff like that but you know again and and the paper does kind of go to this a little bit is it's not necessarily the best way to do it and the whole point of these these programs and this is a government program so take it as you know we're not. We're not sympathetic. Not, 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 none of us. Not neither one of us. Neither, <laughs> none of the three of us are sympathetic to the state coming in and doing stuff. But the the whole purpose of the state in this case or or to the EU in this case was to interact with the local governments and the state and the country governments the national governments and tell and give them some money so that they could improve their wine industry for export and that seems to have worked a little bit but it also it also served to waste a lot of money on on wineries that were not doing very well so kind of Jackson to pass this back to you um and this is something because you're you're getting into the wine export import and export business uh, Uh, And we'll kind of end on this because we are really running short on time. But uh, in the region of Portugal that you're interested in, do you think that the EU's intervention in promoting the wineries and also building infrastructure that would help the wine wine grapes and the wine to get out for export is going to make it easier for you to import wines into the United States? Or do you think it's more difficult? And also, do you think that these interventions have have encouraged local, like, farm grapes, you know— open field pollination, like the, the local ones that are not necessarily great but are interesting and, and local, uh, do you think that's going to kind of get rid of them in favor of a lot of these French varietals or do you think that these interventions have actually helped to kind of promote the local wine industry and make it available to what I care about and Mason I hope that <laughs> this is what you care about too as much as we hate the government I just want more good wine for me <laughs> I was going to
3: say Jacob you know my favorite wine country is Georgia and they have 5 to 8 thousand great varietals yeah, that's so, true yes. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. so so Jackson to pass this back into your, into your court what do you think the EU's intervention in Portugal in particular, in particular the wine region you're interested in has done or the wine regions you're interested in what do you think their intervention has done to the wine industry is that going to make it better for Americans or worse for Americans?
2: Well, in general, it's going to make it. The overall impact of the EU, despite all the issues, for Americans and for me in particular, in the case of certain Portuguese wines is overall positive at the moment. It makes it a lot easier to export it to the US. You don't have to sign, you don't have to do any extra papers. You don't have to do FDA testing all of that stuff makes a big difference for me. Okay. Okay. Um, so that does make a difference. On the other hand, I think on, in both cases, I think it's been exaggerated as well. So I think this is something that I think I actually have to give the Portuguese credit to, um, to in this is that things haven't changed that much. In in the Duero River Valley, in Barreira, in the Dow region, even in Alentejo where they're experimenting a bit more with international varieties, it's still overwhelmingly Portuguese varieties and the appetite for Portuguese varieties versus international varieties, the the, sort of the French, the noble grapes, the the cult wines has increased. The market has changed. People want more subtle, more interesting, more diverse wines right now. So the demand right now isn't in place for more cab from Portugal, besides for, you know, certain crowds in the US, but it's for more interesting different things. And I think that's going to increase and more people are going to want diversity in one because that's the more interesting aspects of it. So despite the EU for better or for worse, they have pulled up a bunch of shitty grapes. And that's a good thing. Not that that should have been done. Right, but they've also done ish. They've also created issues pulling up perfectly good grapes in perfectly good locations that somebody could take a look at that plot of land and say, "Oh, that could have made great wine. We just didn't realize before." So it's complicated. But overall, I'm optimistic.
1: Okay. Well, I think that's a that's a that's a really great summary and a great place for us to end. Mason, do you want to quickly do the plugs?
3: Well, so first, real quick, I want to give everybody an idea of what we were, what the report we were actually talking about. So this is a European Court of Auditors, Mm -hmm. so... I'm not sure what the European Court specifically means. Obviously, we all know what auditors means. It's a special report from 2014. Is the EU, EU investment and promotions, promotion support to the wine sector well-managed and are its results on the EU on the competitiveness of the EU wines demonstrated? This is uh, number uh, nine, so just so everybody knows. But yes, so we are Tasting Anarchy. You can follow us on Twitter at Tasting Anarchy. Um, or Tasting Anarchy. You can email us at tastinganarchy at gmail.com. You can also check out uh, our site, which we are hopefully getting better updated. Possibly getting some reviews from Jackson himself, um, if he feels so inclined to grace us with those. And he certainly welcome do He certainly welcome not to, if he chooses not to. Uh, at tastinganarchy.com, um, Jackson, I believe you can be followed on Twitter on
2: at uh, just uh, Jackson Blood, right? Yeah, just Jackson Blood. One on Twitter, easy to find if you don't mm-hmm. mind my obnoxious opinions about. I think pretty much everything. <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> I, I, I don't say, think
3: they're obnoxious. See, they're fun obnoxious <laughs> opinion, so I will recommend highly you do those things yeah. um, real quick. We have two friend podcasts that uh... <laughs> well, to higher higher-level friend podcasts. You know, we, we are friends, obviously, with anybody who uh, doesn't believe in socialism as enforced. You know, if you believe in socialism between you and your friend, hey, great. You know, let's talk about it and see why we don't think it's a good idea, but you can do whatever you want. Um, you can always follow the Friends Against Government podcast, uh, Car Campit and Birdarchy, uh, also known as The Fags. Uh, always good time, and then uh, "Sounds Like Liberty." Jacob has been on it. I have recorded an episode with them. Hopefully, they'll actually post it. I don't. I'm not implying that they won't. It may be out already by the time you're hearing this episode. Um, may come out this week. Don't really know. But um, you can always go over there and listen to Nikki P and Lizzie if you're interested in music. Friends, you know, they're always talking about something bizarre. Generally about clout. I think. Um, <laughs>
1: yeah. You know,
3: Bird and Robbie. Uh, Robbie be the fire i think that the same person despite them being on two different on the same podcast and pretending uh but you know we'll keep that feud low today yeah
1: all right well i think that that's good jackson do you have anything that you want to plug how actually real quick can you give us a couple of minutes summary of how your uh wine import uh not necessarily the business but how is that all working i know that i'm sure that that's a lot of work it's,
2: i've been working on it i need to like keep up pace with some of the forms but it's been going i'm moving along making slow steady progress but i'm really you know i'm ready to get it going just need to a lot of it's just the waiting time you know do you do you have a time frame for your shooting for like when it was so anywhere between honestly this is how crazy it is anywhere between six and 18 months okay okay well i mean that that,
3: that's not bad you know because i wasn't sure if you were like 2020 or well 2020 Mm -hmm. i mean in, in my own life that's less than you know 13 months away but (laughs)
1: <laughs> right okay well anything else you'd yes. like to plug plug Jackson
2: um I think that should be it
1: okay all right everybody thank you Jackson for joining us Mason I think that uh, that wraps up the show today thanks for having me you're thanks welcome from me stay, uh, from stay, me, stay, stay free. free stay, stay free start
0: fighting all night knock down winters and turn down door drinking half a and calling for more drinking wine spotty you to drink wine mop mop wine you to drink wine mop mop wine you to drink wine fast to me. Drink it man. Oh, give me some of that slaw. Oh, pass that bottle to me. If you want to get along in Peterstown, buy some wine and pass it around. The age runs up to 49. All lamb kids they love sweet wine Drinkin' wine, for you to drink wine Wine, for you to drink wine Wines for you to drink wine Pass that bottle to me Hoy! Wine, wine, wine Elderberry, Wine, wine, wine Cherry, cherry Wine, wine, wine Blackberry Wine, wine, wine Port and Sherry Wine, wine, wine Oh, pass that bottle to me now down on Kirstie at Willie's Den, he wasn't selling but American gin. One soldier wanted a bottle of wine, he hit that cat for a dollar and a dime. I'm drinking wine for the Yodi, drink wine, wine for the drink wine, wine for the, drink wine. Wine for the drink wine, pass that bottle I got a nickel, have you got a dime? Let's get together and get some wine. Somebody's fifth and somebody's fourth. When you get together, you're doing things smart. Drinking wine, sport, to drink wine. Wine, sport, drink wine. Wine, drink wine. wine drink wine. Pass that ball to me.